Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. We want information. 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 Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and... Kevin. I'm Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week with episode 34. And we're kind of doing a garbage people regurgitated uh, Brock Turner, but we also are throwing in a couple extra stories kind of connected to the case. So the full episode is garbage people regurgitated Brock Turner and the infuriating comparison to Brian Banks and the incredible journey of Chanel Miller. (laughs) Wow, that's a mouthful. I know that people search by topic. And so I wanted to be able to put in other names because we're not going to talk about Brock Turner this whole episode, but he's definitely the reason for the season, as they say. (laughs) So we're going to (laughs) start off with his story, but then we're going to get into way better stories and better outcomes, which doesn't even seem possible, but it is. So so. Brock Turner was a 20-year-old student and three-time All-American swimmer at Stanford University. In 2015, he attacked Emily Doe, as she was known at the time, who was unconscious after drinking a lot at a fraternity party at Stanford University. And what we mean by being attacked is he was sexually assaulting her slash raping her behind a dumpster. I guess he was walking along, saw a passed-out chick, and decided, hey... That seems fun. Fucking freak. That is that, so strange to if me. If I ever saw a passed out person behind a dumpster, the first thing I would do is call an ambulance. Like, it, my first instinct, it's insane that his first instinct is, let me have sex with this woman behind a dumpster. You know, we love dumpsters, but... That's fucking... It, <laughs> no, that's fucking insane. Like, there's something fucking seriously wrong with this dude. Uh, you, that, yeah, you think? But uh, anyways, we'll get into it. So two young men on bicycles rescued her. Her attacker tried to run away, but they chased him and held him down until the police arrived. A year later, Turner was tried on and convicted of three counts of sexual assault. At the sentencing hearing, Emily Doe, who later came out as survival, <clears throat> who later came out as survivor Chanel Miller, read a powerful and lengthy statement about the effect the assault had on her life. She remembered little of what happened, a fact that was used against her by Turner's defense attorney. Addressing Turner directly, she told him that he, quote, took away my worth, my privacy, my confidence, my own voice. Chanel's 7,137-word-long statement went viral, 
and was read over 11 million times in four days on BuzzFeed's website. Yeah, I, I read it as well, and it definitely brought a tear to my eye. Chanel also said that Turner, quote, has only apologized for drinking and has yet to define what he did to me as sexual assault. He has re-victimized me continually, relentlessly. He has been found guilty of three serious felonies and it's time for him to accept the consequences of his actions. He will not be quietly excused. Yeah, he will not be. We're still talking about him to this day. And one of the reasons that he's kind of come back up is when we hit the three-month mark for coronavirus of being in lockdown, mm-hmm. every, like the meme going around was, we have now officially been in lockdown longer than Brock Turner was in prison for rape. Huh. Like, so that was like a meme that was going around. And it was just like, no one's going to let this guy forget what he did, which I'm glad. Yeah. Like, And there's a couple of things about him that kind of will immortalize his fate which, again, not sad about. Brock's father wrote a letter to Judge Aaron Persky in which he argued that, quote, 20 minutes of action shouldn't result in a long sentence. Persky himself said he feared the, quote, severe impact prison could have on Turner when he sentenced the former swimmer to just six months in jail. Turner, who could have gotten 14 years in federal prison, served three months. Turner was also sentenced to three years of probation, which expired in 2019, and forced to permanently register as a sexual offender. That decision by Judge Aaron Persky was met with outrage. People criticized Persky for being too lenient. Turner was a first-time offender, a promising student, and swimming champion. The judge said a tougher sentence would, quote, would have a severe impact on him. And he did not think Turner was a danger to others. Unless they're sleeping by dumpsters. Oh, God. Critics of the decision started gathering signatures for a recall campaign. In June 2018, the campaign succeeded. Persky was the first California judge to be recalled in more than 80 years. Yeah, I hate his stupid face. The judges? Yeah, well, and Brock Turner's. And like anyone involved, this is an infuriating case. Like, that's one of the reasons it became so viral, too, is that it was just every single person in it was a humongous piece of shit. In September 2019, Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name, came out. It was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography and an instant New York Times bestseller. It was chosen as a best book of 2019 by the New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, Time, Elle, Glamour, Parade, Chicago Tribune, Baltimore Sun, among other publications. She also was interviewed on 60 Minutes. She was interviewed by Oprah. She ran the whole circuit with her book. And man, she could have stayed anonymous forever if she wanted to, but she really decided to break her silence. She wanted people to see her because she she wanted people to know that they can come out of something okay. I started to read the book a little while back and I couldn't quite get into it past the first chapter, but I, I will admit I was working pretty hard at the time. And so now I think I'm ready to go back to it again. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be good. Also, 
crazy connection is that she's from Palo Alto, which is why she was in the Stanford area. Um, she was born there. I was born there. She's half Chinese, half white. I'm half Japanese, half white. And she went to UCSB for her bachelor's degree. And I went to UCSB for my bachelor's degree. Isn't that crazy? That's kind of a lot of coincidences, you know? In an interview with Time, Chanel Miller said that being in the courtroom was very dehumanizing and stressful, especially because of the treatment of Brock's defense attorneys. In the book, she describes how it felt like the defense attorneys tied her shoelaces together and forced her to run. They were definitely using her being passed out and drinking too much, and they they drudged up her entire sexual history, you know, and they just they put you on display yeah. to show you that somehow you deserved to be raped when you were unconscious. And they, yeah, and they brought, I'm sure, you know, a a tactic of the, you know, of Brock's defense and, you know, other rapist defense is to bring out outfits that the, the person may have worn is to anybody who has wronged, who has felt maybe wronged by the victim in their life can come out and say like, oh, they're not a good person or something to just rip their, um, you know, reputation apart. And that doesn't that just seem like the opposite of the point of the trial? Because like she's already been assaulted once, yeah. and now you're assaulting her again on the stand when all she did was lay there. They had direct witnesses. They had these two Swedish bikers who were like, "Yeah, he was sexually assaulting this unconscious woman behind a dumpster." I don't, you know, and I'm sure that they had samples of his DNA on her and everything too. I'm sure they did a rape kit. Yeah. So it's just crazy to me that we're allowed, you know, the justice system is allowed to treat victims like that in open court. That's why a lot of people don't, you know, that's yeah, and go that's, through with going to court and stuff. They don't they don't even report it. Yeah. Because there is that fear that you won't be believed. And we're gonna talk about that statistic later on. So after the assault and throughout the trial, Chanel needed her anonymity at the time because she needed to figure out and process how the assault had changed her and not have everyone else tell her how to deal with it. She says, quote, I know it is possible to achieve justice without fully dehumanizing the victim, and that's what we need to figure out. We obviously know how to humanize the perpetrator. I watched it happen repeatedly to see his character so fully rounded out. If they can do that for him... They can learn to do it for me. So again, like a lot of the trial was about how amazing of a student he was, how he was going to Stanford, how he was this amazing athlete and he had so much potential. And it was like, wait, what is this trial about? Is it about how amazing Brock Turner is or is it about how he sexually assaulted an unconscious person who couldn't give consent? You know? Yeah. I mean, that's it's so backwards. Yeah, I mean, that's what lawyers do, though. Yeah, criminal defense lawyers, too. Chanel is credited with sparking national discussion in the U.S. about the treatment of sexual assault cases and victims by college campuses, especially, and court systems. Because if the college had anything to say to it, which I'm sure they did, they probably would have encouraged her not to go to the police and have it just, you know, be dealt with academically and... If you're interested in court cases and sexual assault around college campuses and their mistreatment of victims, 
There's a really, I would say amazing, but amazing in a sense that it's done well, documentary on Netflix called Hunting Grounds, which I think it might still be on there. But if it's not, that's what the documentary is called. It's just all about how colleges deflate their numbers of sexual assault victims by being able to deal with them internally. And there was that really famous case that came out around the hunting ground where the woman carried around the mattress that she was sexually assaulted on until they kicked him out of school and like took criminal action against him. So she dragged her mattress around to classes and home and everywhere. It was, yeah. Did you hear about that? I vaguely remember something. Yeah. And because she was just like, this university needs to fucking do something about this because it's not my fault and you need to do like he was still like allowed to attend classes and shit. So she was I know it's fucking insane because it's like if you don't deal with it, it didn't happen. Therefore, we don't have to report it. And then we can make students feel like they're being safe on campus. I mean, it goes back to the David Josiah Lawson case that we talked about, too, is like campuses, even public school. They need tuition to run. I get that. Like, you need customers in a store to make a store run. You need students paying tuition Mm -hmm. for a university to be funded. I get it. But lying to them about their safety is fucking dangerous as fuck, you know? David Josiah Lawson wasn't told about, you know, the previous African-American students on campus that had been... Well, there was at least one um, that died, like, a mysterious death before him, And the very backwards way that some of the locals thought in Humboldt County. So, you know, here he is going to this school that he thinks he's going to be safe at and, you know, not really being aware. Like the the campus community has some kind of responsibility for vulnerable people to know and to, to know what's happening and be protected if possible. You know, I know at UCSB when I went there. I think that sexual assault was fairly high on campus because, A, there's the drinking culture, and B, it's by the beach and everything. I get it. I'm not I'm not condoning it. But as a result, I mean, they have campus security people all over that are not police officers and they do not carry guns. They walk people to their cars late at night, and there's call boxes everywhere all over campus. So even if your cell phone is dead, you can still call a campus security person to help mm-hmm. you. So... I'm just saying that, like, there are ways for campuses to make students, especially from marginalized or vulnerable populations, to feel safe. But part of that is accepting the fact that it happens on your campus and not just covering it up. Right. I think at the end of the day, though, personal safety, you have to be responsible yourself, too. Yes. I also think that at the... What? Oh, I'm just saying, like, when something's going on at that moment, you can you you can call the cops, but they're not going to show up for a few minutes. You got to be responsible. I, but for I would yourself. say, in the case of Chanel Miller, the questions I have, and I'm sure you could find the answers online, and I'm sure it's in her book as well, which I will read. I just wonder how she got left alone like that. Where were her friends? I think yeah, she really. went out with her sister, actually. Huh. Like, what? I don't know what happened, but. At least I will say somebody was looking out for her. Luckily, those two bicyclists came by and aided her. And luckily, Brock didn't fucking get away with it. Now, he sort of got away with it in a court of law. But in the court of public opinion, he did not get away with it. Because people fucking hate that guy. 
Yes. So, with that being said, if Brock's story enrages you, then Brian Banks' story is going to make you fucking lose your shit. Are you ready? I hope so. Well, you watched a little bit of it. I already know. I mean, you know a little bit. So, Brian Banks is proof that the U.S. justice system has different penalties for different individuals based solely on race and financial privilege. To preface this, I want to say that the majority of sexual assaults, close to an estimated 63%, are never reported to the police. So like we were talking about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. There is a statistic that is believed that more than half of rapes that occur do not get reported. The prevalence of false reporting cases of sexual violence is low. To date... Much of the research conducted on the prevalence of false allegations of sexual assault is unreliable because of inconsistencies with definitions and methods employed to evaluate data. I'm getting this straight from a peer-reviewed source. So I'll kind of say what the report says, and then I'll kind of put it into maybe simpler terms from how I understand it. So a review of the research finds that the prevalence of false reporting is between 2% and 10%, which is a fairly large range. What I understand is if the victim gets some detail of the assault wrong, that can easily get put into the false reporting category so that basically police officers don't necessarily have to go after that sexual assault claim and as we know from kind of like prompted by the me too movement and stuff that there is an insane backlog of untested rape kits throughout the country that is fucking mind-boggling and that if we actually process all the rape kits that are in the nation i mean we could solve so many you know serial rapists and potentially even serial murderers too yeah i remember when we were still in Portland, the number of those un- untested rape kits or whatever was fucking crazy. Yeah. And then what's crazy, too, is that there is a website called End the Backlog and it, you could donate to getting the rape kits tested. And one thing that I'm very proud of from living in Oregon is that after that organization was founded in the backlog, Oregon, I believe, was the first state to get to zero. They had zero untested rape kits because of in the backlog. Okay, so they tested them all. Yeah, they've tested them all. Now, they haven't necessarily gone to get all of the perpetrators or anything yet or, you know, match the DNA in the system to, you know, I don't know all of that yet, but I think that Oregon was one of the first states to get their untested rape kits to zero. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty right, amazing. Well. But only because of the, you know, the activism on the part of people donating to end the backlog. I donated to them. Mm-hmm. In 2002, Brian Banks was an impressive high school linebacker in Long Beach, California. Recruiters from many colleges were interested in him, including USC, to which he verbally accepted a scholarship to. So he had a very, very, very bright future ahead of him. A high school acquaintance of his, her name, now a lot of places don't name her and they blur out her face, but I think that it's okay for her name to be known, right? I mean, I don't know. Like legally, I don't know. Well, no, it's, it's, she's over the age of 18 and but I'm like, okay. I won't say her name then, I guess. But she fucked this dude. Okay. Yeah, hard. yeah, yeah. 
So a high school acquaintance so. who shall remain unnamed because I don't know. She's still uh, she's a piece of shit, but yeah, she's a yeah. huge. Turd. I'm sure she's dealing with stuff. She shattered that dream one fateful day after she accused Banks of raping and kidnapping her following a consensual encounter on the school campus, apparently in the stairwell. It was Banks's word against hers, and she was not likely to change her story. After all, Gibson sued the Long Beach Unified School District afterwards, claiming that the school's lax security provided an unsafe environment that led to the fraudulent rape. She would eventually receive a settlement of $1.5 million, which she would eventually have to pay back, and we'll get to that. Brian Banks was faced with an impossible decision at the time. Either fight the charges and risk spending up to 41 years to life in prison, or take a plea deal and spend a little over five years of actual prison confinement. Although it would mean destroying his chance to go to college and play football, a lengthy probationary period, and a lifetime of registration as a sex offender, Banks chose the lesser of two evils when he pleaded no contest to the charges. What would you do? I don't know. Yeah, that's a hard one. I've thought about this a lot. If I was ever falsely accused of anything and I was being pressured by my lawyer to plea bargain... I think I would still fight it because I don't think I could hold back my anger of being accused of something I didn't do without at least trying to show my innocence. But we'll talk about it in just a second, but that's just our legal system is we make it incredibly difficult to have a decent trial where you're not terrified of not winning, I guess. I don't know. It's... Prison industrial complex. (laughs) Well, yeah, we we talk about that all the time. There's another really sad fact about the day that he went to prison for his (laughs) five, six year stint. It was his 18th birthday. Yeah. July 25th. Pretty fucked. Yeah. So that was the first day that he walked inside of Chino State Prison, which so it must have been July 25th, probably 2004. My friend's mom worked there. Oh, really? Lamine, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Many of you have probably watched the documentary The 13th on Netflix. It's been out for a number of years. A lot of people just got privy to it because of Black Lives Matter movement right now and stuff. But they talk about how jacked the trial system is in the U.S. and how basically... Almost no one actually goes to trial. So it's not like Law and Order SVU and all that stuff. Like, it's very rare that people go to trial in this country. And I remember the number being large. And so I wanted to double check it. So I went to the Innocence Project website, which is one of my favorite organizations. Um, And we're going to talk about them a lot in this episode. But the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the NACDL, recently published a report that examined cases that and found that 97% of cases were resolved through pre- plea deals. Wow. 97%. That means only 3% of the time you go to trial. Wow. That's, that's extremely high. Yeah, that's crazy. 
The report reasons that the trial penalty, so like the penalty of going to trial, you know, uh-huh. is the underlying reason for the discrepancy in the shorter length of sentences offered pre-trial through plea deals versus the much longer and more severe sentences offered post-trial. So basically, yeah, it's just not worth it potentially to go to trial. And it reminds me, I know you watched the 13th with me a couple of years ago. I've watched it at least, I would say... 25 times because I teach it up to like three to five times a year or so Uh for the last couple Uh years. And I also watch it before I teach it each year as well. And the Cleef Broder example comes up in that documentary. And I know there's another documentary on Netflix just about him. But if you don't remember, it was this kid who was accused of stealing a backpack with a camera in it and was put in jail and he, his lawyer was just like, plead, 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 plead. You know, you're going to get six months. You're going to get time served. You're going to get probation. It's like, it's going to be a very, very small thing. Don't wait around. And part of the penalty of being poor in the U.S. too is if you have to wait for your trial and you don't have the money, guess where you're waiting? In jail? Exactly. So his family, I believe, could not put up the bail or the bond for him to be out during that time. So he waited three years for his trial in prison. During that time, he had a really, really rough time because he didn't belong there. And then after the three years, you know, he's fighting it this whole time. After the three years, the person basically was like, I think they either found the person who actually stole the backpack or the people whose backpack got stolen was like, oh, yeah, that wasn't the guy. And so he was just let go. Wow. And, you know, spoiler alert, unfortunately, he killed himself after he left prison. So he was becoming this voice of change and, like, our how fucked up our judicial system is and all of this stuff. And then I just don't think he could handle his life anymore. He saw so much trauma in jail that I... Is, is insane. So again, like if, if you're rich and you're aware of like the fucked up judicial system and how they do things, then maybe being accused of something you didn't do isn't the worst thing in the world. But if you're poor and you're marginalized in any way, shape or form in this country, it is practically a death sentence, you know, fucking to be accused of something you didn't do. Like, I know they say innocent until proven guilty, but I don't think that is the same for every group of people, especially if you're a person of color and especially if you don't have money for either criminal defense or for bond or bail. Yeah, there's definitely different rules for different people. I mean, I always go back to the politicians and stuff, but the the shit they get away with and like corporations and stuff, it's fucking insane. And they don't, they're not going to jail. So Brian Banks served five years in prison and five more on probation as registered sex offender. And I believe with time served, I think it was closer to six years, just so you know. His accuser then sent him a friend request on Facebook. So he gets out and he gets a fucking friend request from her. She said she wanted to meet for closure. Over two secretly recorded meetings, she admitted what Brian had been insisting for a decade, that he was innocent. So he was very, very, very clever. In this Megyn Kelly Today interview, 
He talked about after he got the friend request, he like called up a PI, a private investigator, and had them basically wire and video the entire office with like cameras and recorders and everything. Because the thing is, if he met this woman, because he's still he's still on probation with an ankle monitor at this point, you know, he's not out in the clear. If he were to meet this woman who accused him of sexual assault, right? And it was some kind of secret meeting that he just like did on his cell phone or something and there were no witnesses. She could say that he, you know, held her under duress and made her say these things, right? So he was putting himself in harm's way. So he's like, if I'm going to do this right and I'm going to prove my innocence, I'm going to fucking bring in people. So this is when he brought in like two different PIs and all this stuff set up and got her to say without any coercion or anything that she made it up. And like he was smart about it because he was like, if I'm going to get out of this shit, I'm going to get out of this shit. I'm not I'm not going to play around, you know? Yeah. And then he took that material and went to the Innocence Project. So Brian told reporters at the time that he'd taken the plea deal 10 years prior on the advice of his lawyer. He said of his attorney, quote, she told me I was a big black teenager and no jury would believe anything I said. His conviction was overturned in May 2012. He cried openly in court. Quote, it definitely boils down to privilege, Banks said in a CNN interview. But I think it's different facets of privilege. It's not just privilege by race, but it's also privilege by money. What's your economic background? What's your lifestyle? What's your upbringing? The sad part about this is Brock was sentenced based on his lifestyle based on his upbringing. Yeah, he had a lot to say about Brock. So Brian, through his own experience, has a unique perspective. Quote, I was pushed along through court as if I didn't even exist, he said. I was a number. Brock was caught in the act of sexual assault, convicted, and served six months after being humanized in court as a sensitive young man who made a mistake. Brian, who says he was rushed through the justice system, Served five years for something that never happened. Ugh. That comparison right there. Yeah. Fucking crazy. I know. Yeah. And Brock was 20 when he sexually assaulted. He was an adult. Brian Banks was 16. He was still a kid. Yeah. That even just right there, you know, it's like, well, what's the difference? Upbringing and race. Yep. As Brian himself put it on CNN following Turner's release, quote, I had to live through the consequences of those actions, and I didn't even commit them. Mm. So sad. After the hearing concluded, California Innocence Project director Justin Brooks, in speaking to the press, asked NFL teams to give Brian Banks a chance at football again. Quote, after Brian was exonerated, it was important for me to try and get him somewhat back to his dreams, Brooks said. Shortly thereafter, Banks received calls from six NFL teams. I know. It's so sweet. So this guy, Justin Brooks, he actually keeps Brian Banks's ankle monitor on his yeah. desk as like a reminder, basically, that he has the power to release people, give them their freedom, you know? And so not only because it's one thing for you to get your freedom, 
but to get your old life back. Like he had a full ride scholarship to USC waiting for him. He had this promising football career. There were already people in the NFL interested in, in him at 16. You know, now he's, you know, served five, six years in prison. He's, you know, couple at least a couple years on probation. And then he had that time during the trial as well. So, I mean, a good eight to 12 years has passed. And most people that get recruited into the NFL, I'm assuming, are really young. And he's probably in his later 20s at this point. Yeah. So on April 3rd, 2013, the Atlanta Falcons signed Brian Banks and he began participating in the Falcons practices in training camp. It must be insane to go just from prison to the NFL. Yeah, just immediately. Yeah, that's crazy. I think it took a year. I think that at first, I don't think he made any teams his first year and he actually played for like a what's the one step below the NFL? It's like the American Football League or something. It's like AFL. I think it's like it's like one step below and he played for a team out of Las Vegas for a season to basically train to be able to try out again for the NFL. Because, Mm -hmm. again, I'm sure he was rusty. I don't think you have like acres to run on in prison, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you don't. Yeah. Banks made his NFL debut in a preseason game against the Cincinnati Bengals. He made two tackles in the game. He played three additional games before the Falcons released him on August 30th, 2013. Yeah. It's like they they definitely gave him his dream. But I think when it came down to it, you know, he didn't train like everybody else on the team for the past decade. So even though I think they really wanted to keep them, they had to let him go. But they, he got to live his dream for a second there, you know. Yeah. And on top of that, And less he, brain injuries. Yeah. And on top of that, he was super humble and basically announced via Twitter or whatever social media he was on that, like, it was a dream come true to play even one single game or attend one practice with them. And so anything that happened to him, whether he made the cut or didn't, he would be fine with it. And he was cut with, like, 10 other guys as well. Yeah. That's what I felt like when I went to rehearse with Blasphemy the first time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> Afterward, Brian worked for the NFL for a few years in New York before getting transferred to Los Angeles. Eventually, Brian resigned to pursue public speaking opportunities. If it wasn't for the California Innocence Project, I wouldn't have played football. I'd still be a convicted sex offender, Binks said. Yeah, and he also, I haven't seen the show yet because I just found out about this case, but he has a show on, I believe, the Oxygen Network called Final Appeal with Lonnie Coombs, and it's him and an ex-prosecutor who, or I guess a former prosecutor, not really an ex, but they helped people who have been convicted of crimes that most likely did not do it. It's basically a mini innocence project, but it's made into a television show, And he wants to help exonerate people who have been falsely convicted of things, really terrible things, and help them get their lives back together as a way to give back. So, I mean, this guy has had an extraordinary life in that regard. You know, he's been to prison. He's beat that. 
Then he played in the NFL and then the NFL like really didn't want to let him go. And so they were like, can you work in our corporate offices or something like we don't we love you. We don't want to like let go of you. He has this very like charismatic, charming, really great outlook on life. And it's just just you want to be around people like that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then on top of that all, there was a movie about him. I think it's called Brian Banks. And. There, it's a fairly star-studded cast. I kind of want to see the movie, but it kind of looks like one of those cheesy Hollywood movies, like that one with Sandra Bullock, with the black football player that she like adopts. It's called The Blind Side. It looks like that, and if and I know it's based on the true story, but I think that they definitely take liberties with it. Greg Kinnear plays the guy from The Innocence Project. And then he's like in prison about to give up on his life. And then lo and behold, who comes and gives him a wise word? Like literally Morgan Freeman, like the voice of God, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just like, it looks a little cheesy. I still kind of want to see it, but it looks kind of cheesy. I don't think it did very well. I think the budget to make the film was $10 million because they had some fairly large actors in it. And then I think it netted about $4.4 million when it came out. <laughs> so, yeah, they definitely lost money on it making that film. But it actually looks pretty decent. So you're probably wondering if this is a garbage people regurgitated episode. So where is this regurgitated Brock Turner now? Well, let's tell, tell. you. Yeah. In 2017, Denver professors Callie Marie Renison and Mary Dodge wrote the revised edition of Introduction to Criminal Justice, Systems, Diversity, and Change, in which Brock Turner's mugshot is included alongside an explanation of state and federal definitions of rape. The description of the picture includes the discussion question. Some are shocked at how short his sentence is. Others who are more familiar with the way sexual violence has been handled in the criminal justice system are shocked that he was found guilty and served any time at all. What do you think? (laughs) So literally, his picture is the definition of rape inside of a textbook. Uh. And the the professors basically said, like, listen, and, and I can attest to this as well, especially girls, but all people, you know, young students are like, what is up with the Brock Turner thing? Like, it was such a huge point. I mean... We still talk about it to this day, right? Like the the coronavirus lockdown lasted longer than Brock Turner's prison sentence, you know? And when I was doing my feminist club at my last school, I mean, Brock Turner came up weekly as just like, this is part of the definition of what's wrong with how we treat sexual assault, how we treat women, how we treat vulnerable populations in this country. So now in 2020... Brock is working an entry-level job at Tark Incorporated. I'm kind of doxing him right now. I'm all right with it. (laughs) A firm that manufactures cooling technology for medical appliances and earns about $12 an hour. It is also reported that the now 24-year-old still lives at home with his parents in Bellbrook, Ohio, a suburb of Dayton, and drives a 2008 Chrysler Pacifica. His license plate number is... No, I'm just kidding. I don't know that part. And a source told Daily Mail anonymously, he worked in shipping and receiving, and now he's in quality control. I don't know why it's necessary to know all this, but whatever. He's been with us for just over two years. 
He's really quiet and polite. He doesn't say much and he's not really chatty with anyone. He just keeps his head down and does his job. No problems. Well, yeah, when you're a fucking rapist that is literally the definition of sexual assault in a textbook, you think that you wouldn't (laughs) want to draw a lot of attention to yourself. Yeah, I might get a job like deep in the woods. Yeah, you know, with a bear or something. A former teacher of mine who shall remain nameless. Well, whatever. I don't whatever. I've already doxed the shit out of that guy. But he was found guilty of sexually assaulting and molesting a bunch of underage students and had to serve 10 years in prison. And again, like if you were found to be a violent sexual predator, especially of children, you think that for the rest of your life, you would live very fucking quietly, right? You you would think. Yeah. So my former teacher, piece of shit, dude, he, well, I Google him every once in a while to make sure he's not anywhere near me because I want to protect myself because he got kind of weirdly upset, like, he got weirdly interested in me and it made me very nervous. So um, that's why I still to this day, I mean, it's been a good 20 years almost since I've seen, you know, seen or talked to him. But I still just want to make sure I keep my tabs on him to make sure he doesn't live anywhere near me. Fairly recently, he was like suing his work for wrongful t- termination. And I'm thinking like, I don't know if I would bring any attention to myself legally or even complain knowing that you are a molester of children. Because if you Google his name and he has a very unique name, it's so fucking easy to see hundreds of articles about how he molested children at our old high school. Uh That's it's just fucking insane that he would complain at all. So that is all to say that. Yeah, of course, Brock Turner is living a fucking quiet life. He has to because if he were to say anything, all you got to do is you don't have to Google that guy. You're like, hey, you're that fucking rapist. You know what I mean? Like, I guess he's not on probation anymore. His probation led up in 2019. But I don't want to end this on Brock's life. So I wanted to end on some words from Brian Banks, which he shared on Megyn Kelly's Today Show. Simply the power of choice. It's not what you go through but how you allow it to affect you and what you choose to do moving forward. There was a period of my life where I felt, like I said, I had every negative emotion you could think of. And one day I had this epiphany that I'm not in control over the things that are taking place in my life, but I am in control of me while going through these unwanted situations. And so that was the way that I made my way out of hell, was to know that I wanted more for me than anybody else wanted, and I knew my truth, I was gonna stick to it. And it was all the power of choice. How I chose to look at things, how I chose to respond, what I chose to do moving forward. So, Kevin, what do you think? I mean, when you put these two cases side by side like this, it's very obvious that, you know. What are the factors at play? Yeah. Like, I mean, they're both state of California. So it's like it's not like one happened in Alabama and one happened in California. Like same state within 13 years of each other same not even you know the thing is i don't know there's so much there it's not like they're exactly the same case but let's just say sexual assault right right i mean and you know you you can't just make a statement regarding all cases based on two cases but Brian got a raw fucking deal. That's <laughs> that's all I'm trying to say. And and Brock Turner. Brock Turner should 
he got he got a judge who gave a fuck about him. I think again, if 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 we had been talking Oxner Community College and not Stanford, do you think the outcome would have been different? If we're talking Portland State University, if we're talking Long Beach State, yeah. like a, another school that didn't have the prestige of Stanford. And right. on top of that, he was an athlete there, which is hard to do when you go to the well, university Brian was level. Too. Yeah. He already had he, like you Yeah. Know, he it, I know, that's the thing. He had the he had the background of prestige as well. He was gonna go to USC in a yeah, full ride. He wasn't like I So mean, they are much more alike than we thought. But again, Brian was sixteen. He was still technically a kid. Yeah, he got fucked. Yeah, and what's so crazy too is, and then that the oh. person that fucked him, that chick, you know, getting back, well, and know. his attorney too. But yeah, and then she's got. I guess she had to pay back that one point five yeah, million. Yeah, she had to pay it like, back. Oh, and then when she found out she had to pay it back, she tried to recant her recantation. That's right. That's fucking insane. She's a bad person. Yeah, fuck her. It sucks. I was looking up her name to see if anything ever happened to her. And there was a change.org change petition to hold her criminally responsible for a false rape accusation. Absolutely. 29 people signed it. <laughs> and uh, the thing is, I'm sure there's a statute of limitations on it, too. And I'm sure by the time that that change.org petition or the thought of prosecuting came into play i'm sure statute of limitations was already gone yeah and on top of that honestly during the interview with brian banks and just you know reading stuff that he said i don't think he wants her to go to jail it doesn't sound like it i think he understands that there was something wrong with her that felt the need to do that and I think he feels bad that she felt the need to do that to him, almost. Well, he like, is one zend up motherfucker. I know. He is. I think you have to be to make it through prison. Yeah, so I don't think I could have done that. Our verdict is that Brock Turner, welcome to the Hall of Fame of Garbage Dumpster People. You are a piece of shit in our dumpster. And Brian Banks, you're a fucking hero. You are one dude that is way better than me and most people. It would be very hard for me not want to want to go after that shit. I don't know if I could even go undercover and try to get her on tape saying anything. I would just want to, want to fucking strangle her. That might put you back in prison. I know, yes, that definitely. And Chanel Miller, I'm really glad that she worked through her shit and she's a New York Times bestseller and she seems like a really fucking awesome person. And she's, like, got a really promising future ahead. So join our Facebook group, True Crime Dumpster, to talk about recent true crimey events and get additional info on the shows and talk about some shit. The big news this week was on Monday when Joseph D'Angelo, the man known as the Golden State Killer, admitted to 13 murders in a deal with U.S. prosecutors meant to spare him the death penalty. He was a Californian police officer during his crimes in the 70s and 80s. Was arrested in 2018 after his DNA was found via a genealogy website. The hearing in Sacramento took place in a large university ballroom to allow for victims and families to attend. He also admitted to numerous rapes, burglaries, 
and other crimes. D'Angelo, 74, is expected to be sentenced to life in prison in August at a second court hearing where people hurt by his crimes will be allowed to read victim impact statements. Oh, and then the other breaking case is Vanessa Guillen. Um, I'm probably not saying her last name correctly, but she was the young Latina woman living in Fort on Fort Hood, the U.S. Army, I think it's Army base. Yeah. Where like her and 40,000 other soldiers live, um, but her remains were found today. They've been looking for her for the past several months. And so that was breaking news today as we're taping the podcast. Uh, you could follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. We also have a website where we post our source info at truecrimedumpster.com. Listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Lastly, rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Podcast? Our podcast. <laughs> Tune in next time where we talk out the trash and give you another heavy dose of true crime. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. It's time to take out the trash.